Okay, good evening, everybody. So, one of the things that I'm very frustrated with all of you is that I've been enjoying our learning so much that now I miss you during the week. And it's, it's a very, it's, it's one of the downers of an exciting, exciting group dynamic. So, thank you for, for making this learning one of the highlights, the highlights of my learning week. Bad news in terms of highlights, however, is that the last couple of weeks I was truly in an excellent mood because we were doing the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is pretty much like the high point of, of the Tanakh. Happily ever after, the people have entered the land, they're righteous, they're following Joshua. Joshua gets the people into their homes. Happily ever after, even when Joshua dies, I, I don't think I fussed about it last time because, hey, it's a survey, but let's throw this in because I'm, I'm... Even when Joshua dies, I, frankly, as much as I love him, I don't even get wistful. I feel like here's the one man in human history who actually achieved all of his goals. And when Shepra dies, I, I ball. And I'm hoping that next year, just maybe, he'll get in there, right? But when he dies, you feel that sense of anguish that he's not going to make it and he's so, he just wants to cross over. Okay, then... Once he gets over, he'll say, God, let me just build the temple, or let me just do something. He'll, he'll never be satisfied, because he's much Rabbein, he's constantly looking for the next level of perfection. When Joshua dies, you really feel, he, we're done. Tanakh could be over right now, which is sad for me, but it's, but it's actually a nice thought. And then, you see, the book of Judges kicks in. Do we all have source sheets, by the way? There are some by the door, and I always have my stash up here, so that way you know, I, could pounce, I could pounce from a different angle. <laughs> After the death of Joshua, in source number one, the Israelites inquired of the Lord. We all know that all that's left to do is what Joshua told them, and we spoke about it a lot last time, which is, okay, there's still a lot of Canaanites left. So your job, next generation, is to finish off the Canaanite culture. Because if you don't finish off the Canaanite culture, then it will still be there. And that would be bad because then they will influence you and bad things could happen. That's what the Torah is worrying about. Joshua worries about it. The people all make their covenant. It sounds like they're ready to go. And the book of Judges opens up and it sounds great. Joshua is dead. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, which of us shall be the first to go up against the Canaanites and attack them? Okay, we're moving that plot right along. They're listening to Joshua. They inquire of the Lord, just as a technical point. Most commentators understand that this is a a, a specific term. There was a a device or an oracle, I don't know how it works or what nobody does, called the Urimvitumim. Yale likes it, right? But in the meantime, the Urimvitumim was something that the the high priest had, and it somehow was able to convey message, divine messages to people when inquire, for national matters. You couldn't go there and say, which horse do I bet on? It doesn't work. But it's really good for, okay, we have to fight a, war, a national war here. Who should go up first? That's a legitimate reason to go to the Urim Vitamin. So the presumption behind the text is that they went to the high priest. The high priest responds that Judah is the one. The Lord replied, let the tribe of Judah go up. I now deliver the land into their hands. So if you ask me, it sounds like we're off to a good start. Leaving aside the thorny issues of the war against the Canaanites, which is definitely an important issue. I've written about it in an in-depth course. You spend a lot of time talking about it. I'm not trying to shrug off you know, the, elephant, the elephant in the room in terms of just the major moral issue that needs to be addressed, but in a survey course that cannot be done. We have to at least take for granted that the Israelites are required to eradicate Canaanite culture, not necessarily the people, but at least their culture. Verse 8, the Judites attacked Jerusalem and captured it. They put it to the sword and set the city on fire. The Benjaminites, I skipped a lot of verses here because it's a lengthy roster of cities. The Benjaminites did not dispossess the Jebusite inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have dwelt with the Benjaminites in Jerusalem to this day. So be a good biblical interpreter. So what happened to Jerusalem? It's a divided city, right? There's the southern part which belongs to Judah. They conquered it. And then there's the northern part which is the Jebusite stronghold. And that will have to wait until until King David, centuries later, captures it. That was a very difficult to capture place. Okay, so far so good. What I dot, dot, dotted out is that Judah captured a total of seven cities. So it sounds like the people are faithful. They inquire of God. Judah's taking the lead. They capture seven cities, prominently Jerusalem. Sounds like we're off to a good start. Then we find out the Benjaminites did not dispossess the Jebusites. Then we go to the house of Joseph. The way that Tanakh often is organized, and this is organized the same way, is by order of importance. So Judah is the most important tribe. Jacob gave him the kingship back in the day. Judah will, is and will remain the most prominent and important tribe of Israel. 
next most important tribe is Joseph. Joseph actually has two tribes, right? Menashe and Ephraim. And even though I say Menashe first because he is the firstborn, Ephraim is really the more important of the two because Jacob already blessed Ephraim as having the more prominent status. But all the same, and so it's organized as this is how it has to be. Judah's first, Joseph is next, everybody else is after that. That's the order of importance. Okay, so that's what's happening over here. So chapter one essentially is a scorecard of the next generation's record against the Canaanites. So verse 22, the house of Joseph for their part advanced against Beit El and the Lord was with them and they captured Beit El. Menashe, which is part of Joseph, did not dispossess the inhabitants of Beth Sha'an and its dependencies, or of Ta'anach and its dependencies, or the inhabitants of Dor and its dependencies, or the inhabitants of Ibla'am and its dependencies, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its dependencies. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in this region. Would you say that this is because of negligence on their part, or because they just can't do it? Like, did they try and fail, or are they just saying, ah, Canaanites, Shemanites, let's, let's let them stick around? You don't think Israelites talked like that back then? Come on, of course they did. Anyway, yeah, so. Hmm? They did not. So I'm asking, did they try and were unsuccessful, or did they just kind of let them alone? Right. Well, so you're very good. You're, you're, you're breaking one rule of mine, forgive me. One rule that I always have is you're never allowed to look ahead. <laughs> you're allowed to do it before you come here, that's fine. Right? But, it, no, but in the Shi'ur itself, up until I specifically didn't read that verse, because I wanted to ask you what you thought of the verses that I've read so far. So you're right, once you get to 28, it's a whole other ballgame, and uh, you're, you're reading it properly. But I'm interested in, in how to read 27, where it says that they do, did not dispossess. The first part talks about an attack Okay. So from that point of view, that means that they're, they're, the Canaanites are around, in which case it flows right into verse 28. We're still all in source number one. And when Israel gained the upper hand, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not dispossess them. Okay, so read back to 27. So what's 27? It sounds like initially they tried, I don't know how hard, because there's very little text to help us here, but they tried and they didn't do it. But then, even when Israel could, they still didn't. That's the accusatory verse. That's the one saying, oh, even when they had a shot at it, they left them alone. Okay, nor, verse 29, did Ephraim dispossess the Canaanites who inhabited Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in their midst at Gezer. Okay, so it sounds like Ephraim likewise is guilty of leaving them alone. It sounds like the, the flow here is that the tribe of Joseph captured Beit El and then left alone a lot of other cities. Yeah, Megan. Menasha and Ephraim are the names of uh, Joseph's Sons. sons born in Egypt to an Egyptian woman. All true. And I was wondering if that had a, kind of an anti-secret type of uh, DNA in it that might have been corrupt. Well, uh, you'll have to talk to my brother-in-law. He's a geneticist at Hopkins. He can he can help you here. I I, I don't I don't know that that the story here is about genetics. I think the story is much more about their locks. They have a chance to do something, and they're they're not they're not they're not doing the right thing from within the framework of the book. Zivulun did not dispossess the inhabitants of Kidron or the inhabitants of Nachalaol. So the Canaanites dwelt in their midst, but they were subjected to forced labor. I could go on because the verses keep piling it on. Here's one thing: a couple of tips. When you study Tanakh in general, even if they're just long lists like this, it says, you know, Judah captured this one and this one and this one and this one, and you don't feel like reading it as carefully as you should. How many cities were there? The answer is almost invariably going to be seven. And there are. Seven's a magic number. And in this case, there's a long roster of how many cities the other tribes did not capture, and it's much longer even. So since you can't bank on seven anymore because it's too long, you have to assume it will be a multiple of seven, and that is correct, it's 21. There's a pretty common biblical occurrence. It happens a little, like so crazy frequent, you can't believe it. But Tanakh is structured around, they, 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 those biblical writers all liked the number seven very much. So if you have to give grades, I'm in midterm season now, I just gave a second out of three midterms today, and so if you're in grading mode, as I might be, um, 
what grade would you give Judah for following Joshua's command? Based on what we've read? Give them an A. Absolutely. They're, they're solid. You know, they choir of God. They're leading the people. They've captured seven cities. There's one verse that I did not include here where it specifically goes out of its way to say that they were unable to capture one area with the valley because they had chariots. That's not in the, it's in the chapter one. It's not in this. I didn't want to give you the whole chapter because then it wouldn't be a survey course. Then we would finish with chapter one tonight. But bottom line is they capture seven cities, including Jerusalem. They are unable to capture one city. Sounds like they get their A. How about Joseph? Captured one city and then did not capture a lot of them, even given the opportunity. So what do you give them? I give them a C minus also. That's exactly the mark. I've been wavering, actually, between C and C minus. And my notes even say C slash C minus, which is the sort of thing that in reality, if it came time for a transcript, the guy would get a C. Right? But, but that's the way. If I'm wavering, then give the poor guy a break. He's not going to feel happy anyway. But that minus is just like that extra irritant. But with... Huh? No, it's not incomplete. If you, if you get a C, you get a C. That's the way it goes. It's, uh, I'm nice, but I'm fair. And, and so the bottom line... Bottom line is Joseph probably deserves a C, maybe a C minus, if you want to go down. They captured one city, SM. This is uh, history here. It seems that the northern tribes are being held responsible for the majority of the failures to take possession of the land. I'm just quoting. It's uh, commentary. They are. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because that's sort of, uh, sort of getting ready to make the uh, south, you know, the good guys and the north be the bad guys. Until right. Until here we're setting so very good. So I'm going to get back to your point in just a moment. I just want to finish my, my report card here. And how about the other tribes? They're O for everything. They didn't capture a single city. And the, and the list is much longer of, of cities that they failed to capture. So they get an F. I'm sorry. They, they didn't do a thing. They basically left all the Canaanites right where they were when Joshua was there. So Judah gets A. Joseph is CC minus, depending on who you ask. And, and the other tribes collectively get a very disastrous F. That's terrible. Now let's go back to Sam's point. There's just another thing to pay attention to. The foreshadowing potential of this book. Here a lot rides on when the book was put into its final form. Later in biblical history, in the book of Kings, we're not up to that yet, but I'll mention it because it's relevant. The northern and southern kingdoms split, meaning it was supposed to be one kingdom. It was that for a few generations, but then it split. There was a revolution. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Okay? And... The south was the kingdom of Judah, and the north became, was the majority of the tribes. They called themselves the kingdom of Israel. They saw themselves as the legitimate heir to the nation, and they certainly had the populous tribes. They had ten tribes out of twelve. The religious shrine of the southern kingdom became, well, Jerusalem. And this northern kingdom's main shrine was Beit El, the one city that the northern tribes captured in this chapter. So it's very tempting to think, and I cannot overcome this temptation, frankly, that the prophetic author, or at least the final hand of this book, was aware of this, and therefore is setting the stage for some kind of foreshadowing. Alternatively, it could be that the later kings chose these cities because of their earlier historical value. It doesn't have to be that the book is foreshadowing. But either way, it's hard to miss, once you know the book of Kings, that the two prominent cities captured by the northern and southern tribes, respectively, become the spiritual capitals for the later kingdoms of, of the north and the south. Okay, now, something then happens that's really weird. First of all, one thing that's really weird is Joshua has to die a second time. He already died at the end of the book of, of Joshua. In fact, the first verse in our book is after the death of Joshua. But then source two rolls in. This is just chapter two. When Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites went to their allotted territories and took possession of the land. The people served the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua and the lifetime of the older people. These are verbatim repetition from the end of the book of Joshua, by the way. The people served the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua and the lifetime of the older people who lived on after Joshua and who had witnessed all the marvelous deeds that the Lord had wrought for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years and was buried on his own property. At Tinnat Keres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh, all that generation were likewise gathered to their fathers. Oh, literally almost verbatim, a block of verses, copied and pasted from the end of the book of Joshua to here. Why that is so, we'll get there at the end. But for our purposes now, it's here, and that sets the stage for what we then read. Another, well, let's, let's go back to verse 10. I don't like how JPS broke it, 
broke up the verse into a paragraph. So let's ignore them and let's just read the verse the way that it is presented. Verse 10. And all that generation were likewise gathered to their fathers. Another generation arose after them which had not experienced the deliverance of the Lord or the deeds that had wrought for Israel. Once again, the English translation. It's a fine translation here. But I'm just going to read it in Hebrew. Just, these, just this verse. And you tell me what you hear. Right, verse 10 in the Hebrew. V'gam kol hador ahu nesfu el avotav. V'yakom dor acher acharehem. Asher lo yadu et Hashem. V'gam et amaseh asher asali Yisrael. So, sounds like Parah. Very good. Our author is trying to say something incredibly devastating against this generation. It's bad enough to say that a new generation came and they forgot God. That's, that's criticism enough. But the original narrative that this text is playing off of is in the book of Exodus, the very beginning, where it says that Joseph and all his brothers died out, and that whole generation, and a new king arose over Egypt who knew not Joseph. Well, given that the text is clearly making an analogy, so who's Pharaoh in our story? Hmm? Who's, Pharaoh, who's the Pharaoh in our story? It's our next generation, correct. So the author isn't just saying these people became bad real fast. It's saying these people are the new Pharaoh. Right? And you don't want to be likened to him under any circumstances, frankly. This is a disaster. So what our prophetic author is doing is setting out instantly. Joshua and the elders were with him were leading so su- successfully the golden age of Israel. As soon as they die, it all goes down the tubes. The end. Doom. And then, something happens that almost never happens in biblical narrative. I love this moment, so let me hype it up a little bit. (laughs) Usually, like the book of Joshua is is the typical textbook scenario here. You have a text, and we interpret it. That's what we do, right? That's what we spent a couple of weeks doing here. If you go in depth, you can spend a lot more time. It's all good. And you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, that somebody must have written this book, and that's how it got here. You don't know who. You don't know what's going on, but you just know it's there. So let's learn it, because it's part of our Bible. Right? Here in the book of Judges, it started off the same way. The narrator just kicks on in there, tells us what's going on. That this tribe did this, and that tribe did that, and this tribe did that. God is angry. The new generation comes and totally falls apart. Okay. But now, the author of the book steps out of the shadows and said, Hi, I'm here. There's somebody writing this book. And that's what's about to happen, which is so unusual. He's going to say, you're about to read my book, right? A prophetic book. I'm going to tell you my thesis before we start. Isn't that cool? I love that. I I, I can't get over how marvelous that is, that our prophet is going to do that for us. Verse 11. He gives you a summary of the period. And the Israelites did which was offensive to the Lord. They worshipped the Baalim and forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples around them and bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord. Then the Lord was incensed at Israel and he handed them over to foes who plundered them. The author is telling you what, what we're about to read for the whole book. He's not saying what happened next. He's giving you, here's how I organized my material. Right? Here's the thesis. All of the historical records and oral traditions and whatever else I have going on for me that I'm going to present to you in the, in the rest of the book, I'm following this organizing principle right here. That What happened is the Israelites left behind the Canaanites, which is the source of the problem. They married them. They quickly acculturated and accepted their idolatry. Then enemies came. That's the part that we're up to in this cycle. And after the enemies came for a while... The Israelites finally cried out. It doesn't necessarily mean that they pray or repent, but at least they cry out, ouch. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up chieftains who delivered them from those who plundered them. But they did not heed their chieftains either. They went astray after other gods and bound down to them. They were quick to turn aside from the way their fathers had followed in obedience to the commandments of the Lord. They did not do right. When the Lord raised up chieftains for them, the Lord would be with the chieftain and would save them from their enemies during the chieftain's lifetime. For the Lord would be moved to pity by their moanings because of those who oppressed and crushed them. But then when the chieftain died, they would act again, again act basely, even more than the preceding generation, following other gods, worshiping them, and bowing down to them. They omitted none of their practices in stubborn ways. What a disaster. And I'm depressed already. I'm sure you are too. And, I, uh, and then if you read the whole rest of the book, you will find it's really, it, it's really this. So now I can outline the book. I could have done that the first minute too, but my goodness, the author is doing it for me. That is really handy. Here's how it goes. At least in our account, there are 21 chapters. 
The first two chapters are what we just looked at. Chapter 1 is, the Israelites looked like they were going to start dispossessing the rest of the Canaanites, but then they just abruptly stopped and chose not to. This led to centuries of disaster because of the cycle. Intermarriage, idol worship, then enemies kept on coming, people cried out, but not necessarily out of repentance. Then, the, the, we call it the book of Judges, which is an awful translation of the word shofet. Shofet sometimes means judge. It does. But not in our book. Our shofetim, what a shofet can also mean a savior, or a, or a chieftain is fine too. It's a military person. These are people who arose as a result of a crisis. There was an anarchy, and no centralized military, and all the nations in the region understood that. They're like, hey, we could plunder these guys all we want. We could raid them all we want. They have absolutely no means for defending themselves. This is great. And so they would just roll on in, set up garrisons, plunder, tax, steal stuff, and we had no means of beating them off. It was really a disaster. Until the Shofet, the Savior, swung into action and beat back the enemy. But that only lasted until the end of the life of the Savior, and then it would start all over again. Here's a good trivia question for you. In the book, there are a number of Shofetim, a number of these saviors, and one of them is named Deborah, or Devorah. So when you ask people, Devorah is the only blank of all of the Shofetim, what's the answer that you're likely to get? So the, the first thing that most people are likely to say is woman, and indeed that is true. There are no other female Shofetim or Shofetot, right? Fine. But that's actually the third most important distinguishing characteristic of Devorah as a leader in this book. There are two that are far more important literarily. What else, did anybody else say? She yeah. was a prophetess. First of all, she was a prophetess. She was the only one of the Shofetim who actually had prophecy. The other ones did not. They were inspired in some way by God to fight a war, but they don't receive prophecy. That's definitely, I would put that as, as either one or two on the list of Devorah's unique characteristics. Anything else? In general, Devorah had was not the general. Correct. She split the role with a man named Barak. That's exactly right, Sue. And it also sets up something which is even more important about Devorah, which is she's the only one of all the so-called Shafatim who was judging the people before there was a military crisis. She actually can be rightly called a judge. But she's the only one. She actually had an office. People would come all, from all over the country with their questions before the Canaanites began oppressing the Israelites. All the other Shafatim are, are farmers or whatever they do until there's a war or a crisis and finally God inspires these people to come and save the day. So if you look all the way on the back page, that's where you have the outline of the book. So you simply have chapters 1 and 2, what we just read. So you have the introduction, Israelites are lax in conquest. You have then condemnation of the tribes for that lack of conquest, as well as the narrator's cycle. Then chapters 3 through 16 are just shofet after shofet after shofet, or savior after savior, and there and the cycle. That's, that's how it works. So you have Odniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Devorah, with Barak, and then you have Gidon, Avimelech, Tolaya, you have it all, all the way down to 16, where you have Shimshon, who definitely stands out as a class all by himself, Albert. It's an excellent question. The answer is, the real answer is, I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but I've, I've often wondered it myself. The best answer I can come with is that he doesn't have it. There's no, we're no longer a nation in one place. Like Moshe leads the people. He is, you know, the desert encampment. The elders can all meet him at one centralized location. Joshua also. There was Gilgal for most of the period. And then he sends them off to their tribes. At this point, he's expecting that tribal leaders will take care of themselves and everybody will be righteous and they'll beat out the Canaanites and then things will be happily ever after. It didn't happen that way. Right. But I don't think that Joshua... There's no expectation yet of a monarchy where you could have one centralized leader. This book is going to illustrate maybe we have to think differently about having one person who we can count on who's going to be able to lead. Yeah. Who's Right. The strength of which religion. Because the question is, is it the religion of their oppressors? No, it's usually just well, ca- Canaanites. What's their attraction to the religion of the very people who are attacking them? Well, the Canaanites were not usually the foe. Usually the foes are from outside. There's only one story here, which is another thing that makes the Devorah narrative unique. Everything, right? Is that there, she's actually fighting against Canaanites. That's the only war within this book 
against Canaanites. Everything else is Ammon and Moab, and Mesopotamia shows up for one of them. But usually it's local Philistines become the big problem later in the book, and, and, that, and that's how it goes. It's different enemies. It's, they're not adopting the enemy's religion. They're adopting Canaanites because they're marrying them. So they're friends. Right? In other words, they're friends with the local population that they've left behind. Yeah. The Canaanites are one tribe, or they're just the people who are in the land? It's a bunch of different peoples, actually. Canaanites is a, is a name that really covers seven different groups, which are scattered in different city-state form, formats throughout the country. No, they fight. They fought each other long before we ever showed up. It's not like it's one united nation that's getting along. It's that there, there were like people who, who there were city states that sometimes made alliances and sometimes were beating up on one another. Now, then, there's the other two stories at the very end. If you look at the bleak appendix stories, I couldn't help but editorialize with the word bleak because they're nauseating. And if you've ever read these stories, they're they're among the low points in the entire Tanakh. Certainly, the second of the two. That was called the Idol of Micha. In, source, in chapters 17 and 18. Meaning after the cycle, the real book is chapters 1 through 16. That's the cycle. Then the last five chapters, which make up these two stories, are two additional appendix stories, which don't fit the cycle. They're just bad things that the Israelites did. One is they set up an idol, and that led to all kinds of complications and problems. And then you have this Pelegash Begivah, the concubine Begivah, which, if you've never heard this story, I hope you didn't have this sort of dinner that's just going to come jumping out of you. Because... Basically what happens is a man from Ephraim is married to this woman. They're, it's getting dark. There other things happen, but I care about the basics here, which is it's getting dark. They're traveling, which is dangerous. And so they have a chance to go to the Jebusite stronghold in Jerusalem, actually. But they don't want to go to a pagan city because God knows what they're going to do to them. Let's go to the Israelite city of the tribe of Benjamin, Giv'ah. So that's where they go. And unfortunately for them... The people of Giva, oh, so first of all, nobody takes them in. It already shows this terrible lack of hospitality. And the one guy who does take them in is an out-of-towner. He's specifically identified as somebody who's not from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, take them in. No sooner do they get in there, all the townsfolk, this may sound staggeringly familiar, all the townsfolk surround the house. Bang, 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 let us in. We want these guests. And the words are even the same as the Sodom story. In other words, the point is, the people of Israel have sunk that low that they're behaving, or at least the city has sunk that low that it's, it's, you know, it's, it resembles Sodom. Unfortunately for the protagonists of our story, they're not angels who could smite anybody with blindness, unlike the Sodom story. Right? That's how Lot and his daughters got off the hook. So, gallant man, the husband in question, gallant as he was, pushes his wife out the door who then gets raped a lot, probably to death, although it's not clear that she's dead by the rape. And then in the morning, sensitive husband that he is, he just sees her lying on the doorstep unconscious or possibly dead, and he says, get up, we gotta go. And when he notices that she's not responsive, it's hideous, the story. It makes me so sick just thinking about it, but I don't have a choice. We're in the book of Judges. He then cuts her up into 12 pieces and mails these pieces to different tribes and says, hey guys, look what they did to my wife. What are you going to do about it? And the 11 tribes come roaring in. They demand justice. Benjamin refuses. They have a civil war and the tribe of Benjamin is almost exterminated. Not before Benjamin was able to kill 40,000 of the coalition. It's one, and then it keeps, by the way, and it's, it's, not even, it's not even done yet, right? This story makes me absolutely sick. I will say that it's really good for outreach. <laughs> I'll tell you how. I was on a train years ago. I was, I was still single then. I was going to visit my sister and family in Baltimore. And so when I got on a train, at least then, when I was single, so I would bring books. That's what you do. And it happens that I was preparing Shurim in the Book of Judges back then, and I was actually up to this story. And so I was reading one of the Hebrew commentaries. I don't remember which one. And like any good New Yorker, I give off a certain vibe when I'm on a train, like, please never talk to me. I'm really good at that. You know, I just look right into my book, and so some guy sits next to me, and out of the corner of my eye, I see... He brought nothing to do. And I'm thinking, this is real bad. Because <laughs> he might get friendly. So I, I like, you know, tilt toward the window, and I'm reading my book with great diligence and fervor. And finally, he looks over my shoulder, and he says, is that Torah? Okay, so now, I, all right. So I mean, he's obviously Jewish. He's curious. Okay, let's be friendly. So I'm like... Well, you, you know me well enough to know, well, the Hebrew Bible is comprised of three different sections, and Torah technically is the first five books. This is from the book, that, that's, right? This is the book, of, this is what's called the Prophets, and I'm in the book of Judges right now. So he says, well, what are you reading about? I'm like, 
do you really want to know? <laughs> so he says, yeah, well, you know, I'll be on the train for a while, go for it. So I tell him this story in clinical detail, which he, of course, had never heard about before, and this triggered, and I told him why I think it's very important, and before you know, we have this huge, great conversation going on, he got all souped up about Torah, it turns out, as you may have predicted, that he was a person who, you know, took Hebrew school lessons back in the day, and after his bar mitzvah disappeared from his synagogue life, and really hadn't thought about Torah much since then. But he was really excited about all this. He said, you know, maybe we'll, I'll go sign up with my temple. And take, I said, you should. It's better when you're an adult. You really, that, that's when you really get to learn this stuff. So he gets off the train in Philadelphia. And I feel, okay, I didn't do the work that I thought I was going to do, but this was productive, right? So, okay, now I get back into my mode, and I'll read verse 1, because that's exactly what I'm up to, right? <laughs> I promise I'm not making this up. In Philadelphia, a woman gets on, sits next to me. <laughs> and within seconds, she glances over my shoulder. Is that Torah? <laughs> All the way to Baltimore. And it really happened just like that. I'm not, I'm not embellishing. I never embellish. I just calls it like I see it. It's a, that's what happened. So as sickening as the story is, it actually at least made two Jews closer to Judaism on one train ride. So I think that there's... <laughs> There's at least some side benefit to an otherwise sickening situation. Now, what these two stories do, by the way, is they tell you something very important, which is the first 16 chapters are all about since Israelites were lax in their dispossession of the Canaanites, well, they married them, and then they accepted their culture, and that led them to a disastrous dark age. The last two stories, the appendix stories, teach us we Jews are capable of doing really horrible things all by ourselves. It's not Canaanite influence in those two stories. We just do horrible things. It's terrible. Bless us, we do many good things. But those two stories are indicative of we don't need to have Canaanites influencing us sometimes to do the wrong thing. And I think that's an important lesson that comes out of those two stories among many, many, many others. All right, so the end. That's what the book is about. It's just a total dark age with no bright spots at all ever. I mean, the saviors are nice, but basically the point of the book is the saviors at best achieve some temporary respite in military woes and in some... Maybe they have some positive religious impact, but by and large, the people are in a total and terrible black hole. All right, so I could stop here, but thankfully I have some more minutes, which is good, because I need, I, need, I need these more minutes, to tell you that all I've been trying to set out, this was a pretty easy thesis to set out, is that Book of Joshua, Golden Age, Book of Judges, Dark Age. And what was the trigger? How did it go so fast? You tell me. We already know the answer. What? No leader. The fact that Joshua and those elders died out, and obviously they were not replaced by anybody adequate. Albert's question is good, but again, I don't know that Joshua expected that this would happen. He certainly didn't anticipate such a disastrous response. Now, that should be sufficient. And just say, once the old guard died out, the new guard came in and just, that was it. It became terrible ever since. But the truth of the matter is, this is all about you know the expression that you learned as a kid, knowing something forward and backward. I don't know what they mean when you're a kid. I think they just mean that you're an expert or something. But I actually read Tanakh forward and backwards. I think it's a very valuable exercise. Let me, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, we just spent five, um, you know, uh, 40 years uh, or more with Moshe. And uh, learned, uh, you know, about uh, if you do this, if you do that. Um, you know, there's a miracle and all that. How, I mean, what, why did, was there no transmission during this period? I mean, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. It's all, it's all broken. Your, your question's better than any answer I can give. But I think it all goes back to the same thing. If the leadership isn't getting rid of influence and the Canaanites are influencing the Israelites and everybody's marrying everybody, it's very hard to retain the, you know, when you're in a desert, you're in a bubble, Right? So now they're not in a bubble. They need to be able to live as real people. But they can only live as real Israelite people if they're... There were no Balchubas? There might have been, but but the book of Judges doesn't want you to think too hard about that. It seems really dark, and I'm very depressed. So, yeah, I'm going to be more depressed before the evening is over. But at least I'm depressed the way that I think I'm supposed to be depressed, yeah? The interesting thing is that now there's no discussion. Because if you go back and you ask, well, how did this happen... Go down to the Israel in, in the Midbar, right? So Moshe goes up for 40 days, and then all heck breaks loose. These people saw all these great miracles. You talk about another generation. Mm-hmm. What do you expect? Right. So what Joshua expected is that the people were mature and that they should be able to take care of themselves, but they didn't, and that's the problem. Let, let me let me let me just do what I got to do, and then we'll hopefully have a little time at the end. Also, 
when you read Tanakh forwards, that's the conclusion that you must reach. It's, it's really not even hard. Joshua, golden age. Once they die out, then we plummet into a terrible dark age, and it remains a terrible dark age for the entire book. Okay, the end. But then you read backwards. What do I mean read backwards? Once you know the book of Judges, at least on the level that we've just done it, survey-wise, and then you peek back at the book of Joshua, something really eerie happens. And that you couldn't... I, maybe you could... There's no way I ever would have seen this when I was reading forwards. When I was reading forwards, the book of Joshua is all peachy. It's great. It makes me feel so fantastic. But once you have the book of Judges sitting there, and then you glance back into the book of Joshua, something really eerie happens. What you find out, or at least that's the thesis of the next part of the Shi'or right now, is that the entire period of Joshua is a massive ticking time bomb. Where all of the horrible, gross, terrible things that we're reading about in the book of Judges... They were all waiting to happen in the book of Joshua. They didn't happen. It wasn't that bad. It was a great age. But that all the stuff that we just talked about, and I even skipped one. No, no, I covered all the, the major bases. What's happening is, here are the three terrible things that happened in Judges, just to review. Laxity in conquest of the Canaanites, which led to intermarriage and, and, and assimilation. Right, that's problem number one. Problem number two is civil war, that story, the story that I just mentioned, the raping of the woman that leads to an annihilation of a tribe. And the third one, of course, is idolatry. Those are the three great problems, religious problems of the age. Okay. Now, when you go back to the book of Joshua, you will find that chapters 13 through 19, which are largely lists of tribal territories, which is why we spent zero time on them, in the last couple of weeks. That's, that's what they are. They're just land boundaries. Of, okay, the tribe of Judah. Here are the boundaries. This city, that city. And if you know the map, which you know, archaeologists are still working on, but at least if you know the identifiable cities, you can now see here are the geographical boundaries of Judah. But what you find is that in chapters 14 and 15, you have the description of Judah. Judah comes first. And who's going to come after Judah? Joseph. And then... Everybody else. Well, let's see how they do in the book of Joshua, interestingly enough. The book of the tribe of Judah, you find out about Kalev, who immediately, it's not in the source sheets because there's just too much to do. Kalev ben Yifunah, the other good spy that we talked about, he dispossesses the giants of Hebron. And the tribe of Judah immediately is ready for action and they take their territory with great enthusiasm. The one city that they were unable to capture in Joshua's lifetime was Jerusalem, which is in source number three. But the Judahites could not dispossess the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the Judahites dwell within the Jebusites in Jerusalem to this day. Well, when did they finally get Jerusalem? When did Judah get its side of Jerusalem? Hmm? Benjamin, you're right, Benjamin, cap, excuse me, David captured Benjamin's side of the city in King David's time. But when did Judah get its side? Right away. Right after, you're right also, Lisa. The, you know, the book of Judges covers the two halves of the city. That Judah captured its part immediately after Joshua's death. And then the Benjamin part would have to wait for centuries until King David. Meaning, Joshua, uh, excuse me, the, book, the tribe of Judah in the book of Joshua scores an A. Kalev is wonderful, everybody's enthusiastic, they're taking everything they possibly can during Joshua's lifetime. And the one town that they tried to capture that they could not was Jerusalem, and that was immediately remedied right after Joshua's death. Okay, that's Judah. Now let's move over to Joseph, because they're next. Source 4. However, this is referring to the tribe of Ephraim. However, they failed to dispossess the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites remained in the midst of Ephraim, as is still the case. But they had to perform forced labor. Ephraimites did not capture Gezer. Now, not only does that already start casting shadows on their scorecards, but if you cheat and look back at source number one, and look at verse 29 and tell me what you see. It's the same verse. That's weird. Because after all, the most important verse in our whole discussion has been chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua. That's the point, right? Golden age abruptly ended. But wait a minute. Here we have verses that are jumping over this boundary. That during Joshua's lifetime, the tribe of Ephraim is already looking to be somewhat lax. Or if you look at source number 5, when we get to Menashe, the other tribe of Joseph... The Manasites could not dispossess the inhabitants of those towns, and the Canaanites stubbornly remained in this region. 
When the Israelites became stronger, they imposed tribute on the Canaanites, but they did not dispossess them. Okay, so Menasheh first couldn't, and then even when they could, they didn't. If you flip back, this is the last time you will have to flip, I promise. I know flipping is a little irritating, but you've got to see this. Go back to verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. And what do you see? It's the same verses again. That there were two periods for Menasheh. First, they were unable to conquer their Canaanites. And after a while, even when they could, they didn't. Uh-oh. This is weird. So that's in the book of Joshua, our golden age. We're hearing Judah A... Joseph, maybe so far not even a C or C minus, because at least there they got Beit El, but at least they're struggling with the same issues of laxity. And how about the other tribes? The other tribes, it's a little cuckoo. Look at source number six. But there remained seven tribes of the Israelites, which had not yet received their portions. Meaning after Joshua conquered major parts of the land, drew a map, told every tribe where to go, we're still in Gilgal, which was the home base of the Israelites during the conquest. And seven tribes are still just sitting around in Gilgal. So Joshua said to the Israelites, How long will you be slack about going and taking possession of the land which the Lord the God of your fathers has assigned to you? Joshua, in his own lifetime, and to their face, is yelling at the other tribes. Get on over there. Go home. Go to your tribes. Well, that's foreshadowing the F that we're going to get in chapter 1 of Judges. Really crazy. Here we are in the book of Joshua, our golden age, where everything is great. Joshua is exerting fine, perfect, centralized religious leadership. Everything is righteous. Everybody is great. But wait a minute. All of the laxity and conquest, which is the cause of all the problems in the book of Judges, it's all right here during Joshua's lifetime. And in the same order, Judah A, Joseph C, other tribes F. That's weird. But wait, there's more. Um... Chapter 22 in Joshua, which is not in your source sheets at all, I'll tell you the story. I, I mentioned it briefly the other time, but I'll mention it again. That you know, the tribes that chose to live on the east bank of the Jordan, Reuven and God and half of Manasseh, they wanted to stay there because they had a lot of sheep. So they went to Moses back in his day and said, you know, Moses, this area over here on the east bank is real nice for sheep, and we have sheep. And Moses very, you know, has that steely... Look, waiting for them to make their move. He doesn't say anything. And then they're like, well, we want to stay here. And then Moses goes ballistic on them. It's like, what? You don't want to enter the land? You're not going to help us fight? You're just as bad as the spies? You're going to demoralize all of us? And then they say, look, let's make a deal. We'll send soldiers, 40,000 of them is how many they actually did. They, they adhered to their treaty. We're going to send soldiers. We're not going to hold back. We're going to help. We'll risk our lives with everybody else on behalf of the nation. But we want to live here. And Moses says, okay, deal. If you fight with us, then at the end of the conquest, you can live here. And your families can stay here all the while. Okay, so that's what happens. Book of Joshua goes by, sent 40,000 troops, they fought. At the, end of, at the end, in chapter 22, Joshua says, okay guys, congratulations, you did it. Fulfilled the deal, just what you promised Moses, you now may go home. The war is over. He blesses them. Hmm? It wasn't over. They, they didn't go into the rest of the places. Right, but the national... You're, you're right, Marvin, but the, the national war was done, and from now on it's going to be a tribal, you know, tribe by t- tribe, what Joshua was counting on for the next generation, which mostly never happened. So Reuven and God and Menasheh, their elders and soldiers, cross the Jordan River, and along the way they build a huge altar. Well, it doesn't sit well with the other nine and a half tribes. And they immediately assemble a huge war party headed by a man named Pinachas. Who's Pinachas? And he skewered a, a couple in a sinful moment at Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25. And he's also Aaron's, the high priest's grandson. And he's a Kohen himself. So Pinachas is there with a war party of nine and a half tribes about to fight a war of annihilation against the two and a half tribes. Say, so how dare you build another altar? You're trying to build another religious shrine. You're competing with us. You're creating a rift in our nation. And they're like, God forbid, it's the opposite. We're building this altar not for sacrifices. We're building it because the Jordan River is a major geographical boundary between us. And we want our children to realize we're all one people. What a beautiful response. And when Pinchas and the nine and a half tribes hear that, they're like, phew, good answer. All right, shake hands. We're all friends. Bye. Over. That means we were yo close to a civil war. But they they do offer up offerings. 
Not on that it's altar. Not on that altar. No, no, no. no. The, it, this was a monument. And they built this altar not as a competing central shrine for the East Bank tribes. They, they used it for, they, they used it to create this boundary eraser. So, you have a nine and a half tribe coalition in Joshua's time, headed by Pinchas, tri- about to fight a war of annihilation against two and a half tribes, but it gets averted because the two and a half tribes say the right thing, thank God. Right? Okay, scroll forward to that sickening story that I told you about, Pilegesh Begiba, the concubine Akiva, where a war party comes with 11 tribes, and you find out during the story, one man who's there is a man named Pinchas. He's there also. He's the high priest in that scene. And... This time, the Benjaminites don't say the right thing. They say, we're not turning over the rapists. We're going to stick up for our men. And then the 11 tribes say, oh, yeah, we're going in there. And they attack, very foolishly, obviously. It sounds like they just ran in. Over two battles, 40,000 of the coalition get killed. Finally, they come up with a battle strategy, some kind of ambush, and they completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin down to the last, I think, 900 men and no women or children. I mean, they really finish off the tribe of Benjamin, just about. Okay. So that sickening, horrible, terrible story about immorality, about the sickening rape, about all the terrible things that happened, and about a civil war, how the tribes of Israel can fight to the death. Well, that's all in the book of Joshua, too. It's just that there it got averted. Right? It's the same thing. It's just that thing. Well, it's different because the end result is entirely different. There wasn't any war. Yeah, Benjamin? It's very extreme. Huh? It seems to be quite extreme for the same people. It's very extreme. In the case of the book of Joshua, just to mention very briefly, if you would have asked the nine and a half tribes, they really, and I I sincerely believe them on this point, if you would ask them, why are you attacking them? They would say it's a war of self-defense. Why? Because they were absolutely certain that if these two and a half tribes build this altar, God will be furious and plague all of Israel. And we can't have that. We must eradicate the sinful element so that God doesn't smite all of us. And that's what they tell the two and a half tribes. They say, this is a war of self-defense. We have to attack you or God will attack us. So it is extreme, but they're, they're genuinely terrified of divine wrath. I don't blame them. And, uh, hmm? Yeah, that's what they want. That's exactly right. That's how, that's how they're viewing the story. But once they realize, oh, they're not sinning, okay, all bets are off. God is fine. And we're all good. Yeah, Megan? Oh, um, why would 40,000 men who are doing essentially what they feel is the righteous thing uh, to uh, kill the people who uh, raped the woman and um, why would 40,000 of them be killed? Oh yeah, it's a, it's a, the Talmud struggles over it. The, you know, the, the, the Tanakh does not give any answer to the question. In other words, later rabbinic thinkers are bothered by your question. So you're, you're on a very good page here. That requires a lot of study in that story in depth. Don't worry. I'll be around here for a long time. After our two-year survey course, then we can start doing things in depth, right? But, but, but we'll have to be patient for tonight. And so, believe me, this stuff eats me up too. But, 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 but you gotta, you got to stay focused on the survey part. But, but your question is fabulous and obviously very important for that story. Um, idolatry, the last of the big three terrible things. So far, we have laxity and conquest completely foreshadowed in Joshua. We have war, civil war. Right? or war between the tribes. I was just in Memphis a couple weeks ago, so I have to start remembering that, uh, that term again. But in the meantime, war between the tribes, and that, that's set up in Joshua and then warded off and only explodes in Judges. Idolatry, right? Well, there was no idolatry in Joshua, right? They're all righteous. That's the whole point of the book. Until you remember the very wonderful covenant that we looked at just last week. We even read these verses, but you can't hear Joshua's voice because you can't believe that this is really happening. Look what he says in source number eight. Now, therefore... This is Joshua with his great, fabulous ceremony. This is the one that Rashi made a big deal about last week. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him with undivided loyalty. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Get rid of your idols, folks. This is Joshua talking to the people. Um, excuse me, do they have idols? Now Joshua needs to tell them to go away. We read this verse, but again, it's, it's hard to believe, right? A Barbanel, by the way, and other commentators, many commentators say, they don't have idols. They're all righteous because the book says so. It's rhetoric. What he's trying to say is, hey, everybody, today is the day we all need to choose God and not idolatry. That's a fair reading of the story. But there are other commentators, like Radak and Ralbag, in the 13th and 14th century, who say, no, if Joshua is saying, get rid of your idols, that means that they obviously had idols. And presumably they listened, because the whole point of the book is that people listened to Joshua and were righteous. 
Well, if Radak and Ralbag are correct, then it turns out that the three smoking gun terrible things that make the book of Judges so absolutely horrible are all in evidence in the book of Joshua. Laxity and conquest, potential for civil war, idolatry. It's all right here. That's so weird because up until just 20 minutes ago, I was sure that Joshua was a total golden age. And it all just went to pot after Joshua and, the, and his contemporaneous elders died. But once you have all of this, it's kind of unmistakable that this is part of the story. When you read backwards, you can't help but see it. And this, so just to summarize, when you read the books of Joshua, then Judges forwards, you have to read it the way that we read it. Golden Age, Dark Age, the end. Right? That was the first part of the Shior. Once you read backwards, once you have the book of Judges, and now look back and reread Joshua, you can't miss all of the ingredients for failure and judges are absolutely there and percolating sometimes beneath the surface, sometimes right there on the surface during Joshua's lifetime. And this brings us back to what we discussed already, but now you can just see it in chart form. So why did Joshua have to die twice? And he didn't really die twice, you understand. But why did the book of Judges copy and paste the end of the book of Joshua to the book of Judges? So most of our commentators, beginning with Rashi, say very simple. Because everything fell apart so quickly after Joshua's death, you might think, oh no, maybe it's falling apart during Joshua's lifetime. So the text needs to stress, nope, Joshua died, the elders died, then it went to pot. It's not on Joshua's dime, it's not on his watch, it's not on the elders' watch, it's to exonerate Joshua, it's to let everybody know Joshua doesn't deserve the blame. And that's a perfectly fair reading when you read forwards. When you read Joshua, then Judges, Rashi's right. The point is, Joshua and his contemporaries were not responsible for this terrible downfall. But once you read backwards, and uh, I can't help myself, that's what I do when I read Tanakh. I like reading forwards and backwards to hear what's going on. Then you need more to the story than that. And for this, the hero of the day is Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. Robert, I told you he's the hero of the day. Here, here, yeah, I had to wait till, eight, you know, till, till now to get there, but that's, that's, this is where he should be. Ramban lived in the 13th century in Spain, or what became Spain, in Barcelona. And he wrote one of the greatest commentaries ever written on, on the Torah. It's really a fabulous, fabulous commentary. And he makes an interesting observation, which seems technical, and then it just becomes so grand, I can't even begin to tell you. It's such a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous point. Source number nine over here. Ramban notices a curiosity that the first verse in the book of, of Exodus is, and these are the names of the people who came with Jacob down to Egypt, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yudah, la, la, la. So Ramban notices that there's another verse in Genesis chapter 46 that pretty much is verbatim the same thing. So Ramban's like, well, why the repetition? That's, which is a good question to ask. You know, why the Torah doesn't need to repeat itself? So Ramban answers, and his answer is just fantastic in source 9. It is for this reason that God returns to the beginning of the subject stated in the book of Genesis, which is the verse, and all his seed he, Jacob, brought with him into Egypt. There it is written afterward, and these are the names of the children of Israel who came into Egypt. This is the very same verse that he repeats here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Even though they are two separate books... The narrative is connected with subjects which follow one another successively. What is Ramban saying in plain English? Why are the verses repeated one time in in the book of Genesis and one time here at the beginning of Exodus? To connect the two books. That Genesis and Exodus, they count as two separate books and we have to read them as separate literary units. But Ramban is saying, but you also must read them as one grand literary unit. Because the Torah is is repeating this verse to let you know that. And then he gives another example, which is more obscure, but very important. If the last two verses of the book of Chronicles are identical to the first two verses in the book of Ezra. So Ramban makes this point over here. A similar case is found in the book of Chronicles and in the book of Ezra. The author repeated the very language of these two verses at the beginning of the book of Ezra in order to connect the narrative to let you know that it's one super book. It's a fabulous point, right? I mean, when you read Genesis and Exodus, it's never the same after you read this Ramban. Because for the first, instead of thinking of five books of the Torah, you have to think of five slash four books of the Torah. And how you read Genesis and Exodus as separate literary units and how, how you read them as one great literary unit changes the game. It's fantastic. And you have to do both, thanks to Ramban. And it's worthwhile, let me tell you. Another time, of course. But, but I'll tell you all about it. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Well, I'll propose for this evening... 
Ramban could have identified a third example of repeating narratives that connect two books, and that would be Joshua and Judges. Right? Our books. The repetition of Joshua's death at the beginning of the book of Judges is signaling to us, according to Ramban, that on the one hand, we have two units, golden age, dark age, the end, we're done, that's, the, that's what happens when you read them as separate units. But if you read them as one literary unit that are joined at the hip by this repetition, that's Ramban's point, well then you could see that all the stuff that happens in Judges was already happening in Joshua, it just didn't explode yet. But all of the seeds are planted, ready to pop, and as soon as Joshua dies, it just all erupts, but it's definitely not out of nowhere, yeah? I wonder if this would be seen also as Moshe's prophecy that he says, and later at the end, during my lifetime, you say, you know what's going to happen after I'm dead? And Joshua's an extension of Moshe, but it's maybe you see. So right. really, this is showing you, you know, Joshua's the extension of Moshe, the relationship, and after they go, then you know, Moshe's prophecy of what was going to happen after he died, and then Joshua, who was his sort of agent, this is exactly what happens. Exactly. This is the first of several times, and, and, and you're absolutely right. But your point is strengthened all the more by this literary co- connection, but you're, but, you're, but you're right, yeah. It, it also shows you why uh, Kings is probably <coughs> text, and uh, by that time, the people were probably so tired of all this that they thought, oh, just give us a king. Yeah, the Book of Samuel, it's called the Book of Samuel, but it could have been called the Book of Kings also, because that's where the monarchy comes in. You're absolutely right, and tune in in two weeks, and we're going to go crazy. And, 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 Are the following books not seen as continuous narrative? Not in the same way. In other words, it's one sequential narrative, Joshua to Kings is one narrative that follows right from the Torah, right? But what Ramban is saying, and I'm plugging it into our situation, is that on the one hand, you have four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, but Joshua, Judges are a unit. You have to read them as two books, and one, I actually wrote an article on this many years ago, and inspired by Dr. Seuss, I called the article One Book, Two Books, <laughs> right? I really did, and, 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 and referring, referring to this thing, I, I love One Fish, Two Fish, and... and but, but, but that all being said, that's exactly what Ramban is driving at. He's not saying to read it as though it's not one book. It's two, there are two literary units, and we must read them as golden age, dark age. But what the combination, what joining them at the hip is suggesting, and what our whole shiur has been about, is that once you read them as one literary unit, you cannot help but see that it's one steady progression from righteous age, but doom right beneath the surface, to, okay, the cover is now off and everything just explodes. If you want, if, for the theologians in the room, and there are always some, there's one last source I want to show you, which to me is a kicker. Ramban is the hero, but the kicker passage is the very end of chapter two of the book of Judges. It's actually crazy. From, from you know, the time bends in these four verses in a way that Tanakh usually doesn't do. And it's really cool. So watch this. Source number seven. After God is furious at the cycles. Then the Lord, again, source 7, which is the end of chapter 2 of Judges. Then the Lord became incensed against Israel, and he said, Since that nation has transgressed the covenant that I enjoined upon their fathers and has not obeyed me, I, for my part, will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Stop. That's normal. What God is saying is, since the Israelites were lax in the conquest in Judges chapter 1, so now God is not even going to help them if they try. Okay. That's, that's normal. Watch verses 22 and 23 do something very magical and mysterious. For it was in order to test Israel by them, to see whether or not they would faithfully walk in the ways of the Lord, as their fathers had done, that the Lord had left those nations instead of driving them out at once and had not delivered them into the hands of Joshua. That is nuts. All right, backpedal for just a moment. Normal human beings, which of course we are all part of that camp, right? When we're reading the story forward, the reason why Joshua did not finish the conquest himself is because he got old. He ran out of time. He did whatever he could. He realized he was getting old, so he distributed the land into different territories, and then he died the end, and he exhorted the next generation to pick it up. Chapter 1 and 2 that we already read this evening do that. They pick it up. Most tribes fail. That led to the whole disaster of the period. That's, we just covered a couple hundred years there. But these two verses are saying, once you have the book of Judges... It's at the verses themselves, the prophet is doing this. He's plugging the problem back into Joshua's time. He's saying, Joshua didn't capture all the Canaanites because God wouldn't let him. Because God knew that this generation would be bad. That's bending time. Tanakh usually moves in order. Chronological forwardness. But here it's actually looking backwards. It's literally doing what I think Ramban is doing. 
It's saying once we know about the failure, it's now projecting that failure into Joshua's period and saying that God would not allow him to to complete the conquest. Just to wrap this up, because A, we're out of time, and B, we're exactly where we want to be. This is what it means to me. This is what it means to know Tanakh backwards and forwards. It's very different from just knowing how to quote Sukim by heart. I can't do that at all. But, but I'm interested in literarily reading the stories going forward and then reading them going backward. When you read Joshua, then Judges, there's no question that when you read it forwards, it's a golden age, then a dark age. The reason why it stopped being so golden and started being so dark is because the righteous old guard all died out and the new generation was a disaster. The end. And when you read backwards, all of a sudden you see that the laxity and conquest, the potential for civil war, idolatry were right there in Joshua's time. Joshua's strong leadership warded off most of that in his lifetime, but it was, it was right there. And it just exploded on. I think what Ramban's literary point, which I think is fantastic, it really, it really helps lend credence to the whole idea, is that the books of Joshua and Judges must be read simultaneously as two separate books. They are two separate books in tradition, but very much so also as one great literary unit. Okay, Adkan. Next week, we're going to take on my personal...